Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me coming in. <laughs> I don't know what to say! <laughs> I was like, coming in now? Coming in uh, Coming in from Birmingham. <laughs> coming in live from Birmingham. Yeah. How's it going, Darcy? time, I'm okay with uh, putting my location out there. <laughs> oh, I was surprised that you mentioned it in the previous show. Darcy likes to keep it low-key. Yeah, I don't tell people where I know, where I cur- like currently live, but I'm in Birmingham for the holidays. So uh, Birmingham's a big enough city. I feel comfortable. Are you with that. dad or with mom or where are you at? I am with dad right now. And you plan so, on spending time with both or do you usually just spend time with dad? No, I, I usually see both. Um, for Thanksgiving, we did kind of like a different thing where I like me and my dad just had Thanksgiving. Uh, and then I went to my mom's for like a, like a dessert kind of a thing, just because we're trying to kind of keep things like isolated. And, um, my sister goes out and she's not super careful with like the mask thing. So I didn't want to like, my dad didn't want her to come to his house and like, I didn't want to see my sister at my mom's house and then come back to my dad's house kind of a thing. So we're trying to kind of like make everything like as safe as possible, as safe as possible, but like still seeing everybody and stuff like that. So I'll see my mom at some point. Um, I don't know exactly what we're doing for the holiday yet, but we'll do something. I mean, we're, we're all just kind of wanting to keep it low key this year. It's not very you yeah. know, hard to get into the holiday spirit. So I think everyone feels that way. I think we're all just yeah. kind of burned out on 2020 and we just want it to be over and done with so we can recover and be better. Yeah. Yeah. So we are um, in the process of moving, and when this comes out, we will be fully moved in. But Yay. Um, this next week, we've got movers coming. We've been kind of gradually going over there little by little each day and cleaning and just kind of looking at the state of things. We've had contractors coming in and out to give us bids on repairing certain things that need to be fixed. Like it's got this super, it's got two stoves and two ovens. Oh, which is pointless. Like, what do we need two stoves and two ovens for? So, like, we, now we've got with a the cut. house that size, though, that somebody probably um, entertained in that. Oh yeah, absolutely. You but know. it doesn't make any sense for us, and they're super old. Right. Like, one's electric and one is gas, and we no one uses electric around here. Right. Or anyone that I know, I haven't used electric since I lived back home in Washington, where everything seemed like it was electric there. Yeah, but I have I have electric where I currently live, but I prefer gas. Yeah, gas seems like the the heat is more uniform. It's easier to cook with, like yeah. for me. And I used to hate it when I first moved to California because I was used to cooking everything on electric, and I thought electric was better. But now I'm like, oh no, gas yeah. is way better. It heats yeah. up so much faster. Like electric mm-hmm. takes forever to heat up. Yep. But so we have to cut out the two stoves in front because every it's got wooden countertops that were built from a bowling alley floor. Oh. So, and then they took the cabinets out of an old hotel in the area. So okay. everything you, you're going to keep all of that stuff? Yeah. Everything is like repurposed and put yeah. into this house. But the thing is, the countertops are wooden. So right. in order for us to replace the stove oven area, we've got to cut out that portion and put something else in there. So we've got to probably oh. find like a standalone stove. But because it's two ovens and two stoves, it's a big space that it's taken up. So yeah. now we have to get like an industrial size stove to like mm. make up for the that huge gap yeah. in it because it's not like we can go get more wood from this bowling alley floor yeah. to match what we've got. And we can't get more cabinets because this they're not around anymore. They, yeah. they won't look like this. They'll be completely different. So yeah. That's sort of been the dilemma with that. And 
we are trying as much as we possibly can to keep everything in the house and just restore it. We don't mm-hmm. want to remodel. We don't want to change the house. We don't want to change the bones of the house. We want to just restore what's there, make it functional. And mm-hmm. Mike has been going bonkers with the upstairs bathroom areas. And I thought none of it was salvageable um, because we've got the old bathrooms from when the house came first got put in. And then there's been a little bit of remodeling in the 50s for some of the bathrooms upstairs. And I didn't think any of it was salvageable. The sinks are all like these old fashioned marble with brass accents and and Mm -hmm. just gorgeous. Um, And I thought we were gonna have to get rid of them because we couldn't get the stains out of the marble and like Mm -hmm. the faucets and nothing worked, but Mike actually got all of them to work. And the toilets. Wow. the, The old clawfoot tub works, the sits bath works, everything. Wow. It's crazy. So, I didn't know he was so handy. I, I didn't either. Like, he's been amazing. <laughs> like, he got everything to work. He reseated the toilets. Like, I'm, like, blown away. I'm, uh, this man is incredible. Um, and it's saving us a lot, a lot, a lot of money because yeah. we would have had to have a plumber come in. We would have had to have all these different contractors come in. Now, really, it seems the only thing we have to do. And we've even managed to restore the old tile that was laid down when the house was first built. Mm. And the way it was back then is they used to lay tile and cement. They would lay a layer of cement and then they would set the tiles down individually within cement. Oh, instead of like grout? Yes. So it is super durable and it has lasted for 130 years, which is absolutely incredible to me. We just have to clean it. Yeah. So he's been going through and using this special kind of cleaner that he found that's taking all the dirt, all the, you know, wear marks from the years off of it. And it's now almost pristine. It's incredible. So we just have, the only thing we really have to do is paint. Um, and there's a little bit of ceiling damage from an old water leak that needs to be repaired and fixed mm-hmm. and smoothed over. And then there's wallpaper in the ladies' restroom that's just super hideous. It was put up in the 80s. Mm, um, yeah. The woman that lived in our house was a big Victorian-era person, and she tried to recreate that um, look throughout the house. And it does look like it is a paper that would have been around during that era, but it was put in the 80s. So I'm like, let's just remove it and paint everything yeah. white. Um, it's got the old clawfoot tub. It's got like a sits bath. It's got these beautiful marble sink things and the old toilets. And I just, I absolutely love it. The only thing that has to be done is the, the knobs and the some of the faucet stuff needs to be replaced because they're mm-hmm. not, either they're gone or they're not functional anymore. So right. it just needs to be fixed, but it doesn't yeah. have to be replaced, which we're just absolutely thrilled with. That's awesome. So excited. There's you'll one. Have to send, you'll have to send me pictures when you get everything done. I've been doing, posting pre-pictures on Instagram yeah, um, so people can see because I posted a bunch of stuff on Facebook and people were just like, this is so cool. You should write a yeah. book. Like, this is amazing. Keep showing us. Keep showing. Like, hundreds of comments. And I was just, oh, I was awesome. blown away. I didn't think, I thought that, you know, people would be bored hearing about this kind of thing, that I was the only one that really liked it, that it was, like, something that people would be like, please keep that to yourself. No one cares. And Mm-mm. people have been it's like, this is so neat. Like, I, yeah. what does that come from? What does that do? And we found out yesterday, because there's an elevator, there's an old elevator in our house, and we found out yesterday from one of the guys that was a trustee for our home who lives next door to us now that the elevator worked until quite recently. So oh. it could be a simple fix to get that fixed. Wow. It runs from the first floor to the second floor. It's a really small kind of like mm-hmm. one or two person elevator, but it would be handy for carrying, you know, things up and down, you know, for yep. people. 
Mike's mother has got a knee replacement, a bunch of other different things. So climbing oh, stairs yeah, that would is be... challenging. So yeah. having guests like that over to the house and having them have the ability to come up and down and things like that, because it's got a lot of stairs, um, would be amazing. So hopefully yeah. that's a quick fix and we can, it's got the original carpet, like everything original from when the elevator was first put. It's, it's amazing. It's wow, so cool. I can't wait. But any case, that's, the deal with that we're moving and doing all the repairs and cleaning and there was literally decades of dust and grime and dirt and things from this house that have (laughs) no one's cleaned in years so now we're going through with like murphy's oil soap and um orange glow and all kinds of different Mm -hmm. cleaning products and just realizing how filthy it it is so it's been an interesting experience and i'll continue to update when that comes through but awesome i have this interesting article that i think you may have heard about um (laughs) this topic though as soon as i read it i was just like because we are trying to have a baby now Mm-hmm. I thought about this and was just blown away, but it's um, the pedophile doctor who secretly impregnated countless Yay. women with his own sperm. Yes. You heard about this, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, this article came out a few weeks ago, but um, parentage is a central part of identity. So the discovery that one who doesn't share a biological connection with one's mother or father is naturally a shock. Far worse, though, is finding out the people who did create you were monsters of an unforgivable, heinous sort. A fate that befell many men and women whose birth mothers sought fertility treatment with Nevada's Dr. Quincy Fortier. Did you hear about this guy or was it a different one? No, it was this one. So the series is an HBO series. It's called Baby God. And it's the story of this doctor who, over the course of decades, impregnated an unknown number of female patients at his women's hospital. And he, like, ran one of the only women's hospitals in the area and was, like, super well-respected. Yeah. And it's the story of some of the children he spawned, none of whom had a clue that Fortier was their dad until they attempted to trace their genealogy through Ancestry.com DNA kits. Um, And then they got contacted by others who'd done likewise and turned up previously unknown connections to the physician. Through their experience, Hannah Olson's wrenching documentary exposes a legacy not just of biology, but of inherited deception, betrayal, and violation. Since eventually the, all of this becomes clear, Fortier wasn't simply a Cretan who surreptitiously implanted innocence with his own sperm. Beautifully written, by the way. He was a serial pedophile who preyed upon his own children, including one stepdaughter who he personally impregnated. God. As noted by Brad Golko, one of Fortier's offspring, the doctor operated in a pre-DNA era in which lineage was considerably was considered fundamentally unknowable, thus making it easier for men to rationalize the practice of donating their own sperm during medical school. In cases such as Fortier's, to mix their own genetic material in with that supplied by donors, who were often patients' husbands. They simply thought no one would ever be able to find out, and thus the greater good outweighed their duplicity. With DNA analysis now over the counter, now an over-the-counter process, however, such ruses are far more difficult to pull off, and it wasn't long before Fortier's subterfuge became front-page news and landed him in court. He was Sorry, never. Can I interrupt you for a sure, second? Sure, sure. So that that article said, and this could just be like speculation based on what the writer was thinking, but that's that said, the the greater good of helping women get pregnant outweighed the duplicity. That's what Fortier was saying. That's what the doctor was saying. Yes. So that's not, that's not like beneficent thinking. That's like incredibly narcissistic and inappropriate, problematic yeah. behavior. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like that's not that like that you can't justify that and say sorry, that was struck me as so like it stood out because I was yeah. just like that's that's shocking. How he's putting it, basically. Yeah. He he was Jesus. never put behind bars for his behavior, nor did he even lose his license. He continued to work into his 90s from his home where he lived with two adopted daughters to whom he used to give routine physical exams. One of them refused to show her face on camera during interviews and the other, Sonia Fortier, grimaces while admitting she didn't want to know if her dad sexually abused his kids from his prior marriage. She says he never touched her. His son, Quincy Fortier Jr., however, is less cagey about Fortier's true nature. My father was crazy, also a pervert, he, pervert, he pronounces explaining that his dad molested him, each of his four sisters, his younger brother, and virtually any other child that came into his orbit. He wanted to play, he says with disgust. Sonia contends that in his mind he meant no harm and surmises that Fortier used his own genetic material to get women pregnant because people didn't care about their backgrounds as much as they do now. In other words, he was justified because folks were content to be blissfully ignorant about any bioscams being perpetrated against them. Absolutely not. That's a pretty weak answer to the question of why Fortier kept his behavior secret from his patients and underlying all of baby gods is the bedrock understanding that Fortier's willful avoidance of transparency is in itself proof that he, what he did was wrong and moreover that he knew it was wrong. Yeah. So it sounds as though these women, he ran this clinic, this women's clinic, and he had these women that were coming in there that could not get pregnant and they were asking for assistance to get pregnant. So he was maybe doing the turkey baster method. I think it's called mm-hmm. IUIC, not IVF. Oh, IUI. Yeah, I think it's where they take the sperm from the patient and they inject it into the woman's uterus to ensure that the sperm are getting up there because sometimes it is a little bit more difficult just through routine sexual intercourse to get the sperm into the the correct area to transfer. So I think what he was doing was he was taking the ejaculated sperm in the cup that the, the spouse would give to him or the donor and he was mixing his own sperm with that and then taking it into the turkey baster and injecting it into the women. The idea that he thought he was doing people a favor is so abhorrent. Like this, this in a in a different kind of scenario, this makes me think of Jeffrey Tubin, who was that reporter who was just fired for masturbating on a Zoom call with his colleagues. Mm-hmm. He claims he didn't know the camera was on. Like that's his whole defense. But like the idea that you would do that, regardless of whether you think your camera's on or off, is indicative of like so much, so many greater issues. Yeah. First of all, you you probably knew the camera was on. Second of all, you get a thrill out of knowing that you're subjecting people to seeing this. It's the Just, same yeah, thing that it's I, gross. like with this with this doctor. Like he got some kind of thrill in knowing that he was secretly impregnating these women. He did not do it for their benefit. No. I'm so I'm sorry. I'm so animated by this because it's I, just disgusting. I wonder if he even mixed it. I wonder if he just ejaculated right. it up and used his own and not mixed it. I mean, right. to me, it seems like that would be the more plausible explanation for, you know, the pregnancies that all these genetic and it wasn't right. just that. If it was just that alone, then maybe I could say, OK, maybe he felt like he was doing something in some small measure for the greater good. But the fact that he molested, sexually abused did all these awful things to other people as well as doing right. the, the impregnation. It's predatory behavior all around. Just disgusts me. Yeah. That this person was allowed to get away with it. He worked into his 90s, never was jailed, never prosecuted, never even lost his license. No one confronted him. Yeah. Nothing. Just gross. That to me is the worst part of the whole thing. It's he horrible. was allowed to get away with that. It's that wealth. Yeah. It's that privilege. It's all of that in one big fat bow. And he took advantage of it. 
Absolutely. And for his own personal he, the area where he was, he was the only provider for, you know, for like uh, conception, you yeah. know, in the area. So he was the only one that they could go to. I mean, it's just, it's just gross. It's predatory. Cases like this, and I hate to say this, but cases like this just sort of speak to, in my mind, further justification of the reason why I never have a male doctor. I haven't since I was a child. The yeah. last male doctor I had, I remember going into the office for an examination and him telling my mom that I had childbearing hips. Ew. And after that, I never had another male doctor again. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say that men are, you know, less experienced, that they're not as, just as good as female doctors when it comes to a female's body. But I just have a hard time believing in the sensitivity, the knowing how we feel, the being able to identify with what we're experiencing if you don't have those parts of your body yourself. And that may be, you know, very controversial. People may not agree with it. And I get that. But that's my own personal belief. I will never have a male gynecologist. I will never have a male like fertility specialist. I go out of my way to go all the way an hour and a half into Chicago for my fertility stuff because I don't want a male doctor down there. Yeah. Period. There's a lot of women that feel that way. That's not uncommon. And but there's also a lot of women that actually prefer having male physicians. So it's not one way or the other. I think it's a matter of patient comfort. I think that's the biggest thing. And I think any physician would agree with that. They don't right. want to make, you know, any good physician that actually is not, you know, harming their patients, which, you know, is the majority of physicians, obviously. But, like, right. they don't want their physician, they don't, they don't want their patients to feel uncomfortable. And if that's the case, they would rather send them to somebody else where they're comfortable. So yeah. it's, not, it's not necessarily that one is better than the other. It's that that's where you are comfortable. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want somebody who can understand what I'm going through and knows from a personal place, like, what a woman's body should be doing and needs to be doing to work in its maximum efficiency right whether it be for fertility whether it be aches and pains whether it be you know a hormone replacement any of that i feel like right. the only one that's really going to be able to understand that is is a woman but yeah i mean that's my own personal opinion please don't write us nasty emails about your male doctor who's so fabulous but that's just my own in my experience having grown up in a certain sort of environment and he hearing comments like that from doctors just it made you uncomfortable it was very uh, traumatic for me yeah so you so you went the other way you went to a position of comfort yeah and that's so, i mean that's well within your right i mean that's but i have to wonder how many doctors did the same thing i mean in an area where it was untraceable i mean and they never thought that it would be traceable so yeah it, i think that is one really scary thing that these websites like ancestry.com yeah they're they are bringing families together they are bringing some good to the world but they're also bringing all these dark little secrets to light yep. that people did not expect were going to be there yep and i've heard people say that as well that you know when i've asked them hey why don't you do ancestry.com or why don't because they were like you know i don't really know much about my family history i don't know much about my background and like yourself they're like i don't want to know Right. There could be dark things in there that I don't want to hear about. And so I don't want to know. So I'm not going to open that Pandora's box. Right. And mine is, and I've certainly heard of people and know people who have discovered, you know, siblings they didn't know they had kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But but my, my thing about not wanting to find out it, my family background is I don't want to identify my biological parents. I have no interest in that. And I, and I, and I know that opting into 
one of those things where like if I could find out information about like generations you know two and three generations ago about that would be interesting to me but yeah. I don't want to find out um I don't, I don't want any link to my biological parents I don't have any interest I don't have any desire to connect with them and when you opt into those services those are the ones that you're more likely to get connected with so that's right. kind of my avoidance of it but um so it's the thought yeah, really I mean, that they didn't care to have you in their life so you don't care to have them in their what is the, the no kind of it's background not like an, there's no anger there's no um there's not any animosity or any kind of it's just i they're just not like it would be like meeting a stranger on the street like it it wouldn't to me it wouldn't have any kind of like oh there's this long lost connection that i felt is missing from my life that i now have it that that wouldn't be it i'm not looking for that i don't need that i feel fulfilled with my family with my parents Mm -hmm. um so i'm just i just don't have any interest in reaching out yeah well i mean it is what it is. You certainly yeah. have that, that perspective and that right to have that perspective. So. Yeah. Why don't we jump into the main case for the day? Let's do it. Um, okay. So this happened in the 90s. So I'm going to do a little sidebar for what happened. This happened in 1993. Okay. So I was like, hmm, let's go back in time to 1993. I went what to a 90s bar last night. It was awesome. Fun, Sorry. fun, fun, right? Yes. So what happened in 1993? Um, the Islamic fundamentalists bombed World Trade Center for the first time. This mm-hmm. was in New York, I believe. Do you remember hearing about that? Or was that way, way too young for you? It was too young. I mean, I know about it in, in history, but it, uh, it, I don't remember when it happened. I was too yeah. young. Yeah. Well, Beanie Babies were also launched that year. Yeah. It's pretty exciting, right? <laughs> that was more my my level of current news events. Right? That's why I brought it up. Because I was like, yeah. you're little. You probably had some of those little suckers. And I think everybody... Actually, didn't have them, but I had a lot of friends that had them. Everybody thought they were going to be worth so much money, and now and they're, they're like, so not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're not like Barbies or like collectible toys. I think toys. like that they're Princess Diana crap. one's probably pretty valuable, but nothing else. That's about it. I never had a Beanie Baby. Uh, that wasn't yeah. something that I cared for, that Me I thought about, that I collected. I thought they were stupid. <laughs> that's when they were. <laughs> that's when they were launched back in 1993. Yeah. Um, Intel made their famous Pentium processor and released it that year. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first bagless vacuum cleaner was introduced that oh, year. Oh, which was wow, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. You didn't have to buy the bags for your vacuum yep. anymore. Whoa. Big stuff. That is a pretty huge advance because I love a bagless vacuum cleaner. Yeah, me too. Um, the Waco siege happened that year with David Koresh. Yeah. That was a big one. Huge, huge, yep. huge. Um, I think they said something like 70 people, 70 some odd people died. 76 people died. Yeah. Um, The Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty was signed with Bush and Yeltsin that year to reduce... The START Treaty. Yeah, to reduce nuclear weapons and things like that. That, You know, the whole Cold War between the U.S. and Russia was kind of officially done by that point. Um, The first female prime minister in Canada was that year, Kim Campbell. But the thing is, she was, like, only in for a few months. She left November 1993. So I don't know how much that really counts for. But Bill Clinton was elected president and started that year. Yep. Uh, the Brady Bill for background checks yeah. happened that year on buying weapons. Um, I do remember that. This is a huge one. Nelson Mandela um, got mm-hmm. the Nobel Peace Prize that year for helping to end apartheid in South Africa. Huge. That was a huge, huge, yeah. huge thing. Um, Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Muslims and the Croats were fighting. That was a huge thing yep. as well. 
the European Union was created that year. Um, the Space Shuttle Endeavour launched to repair the Hubble telescope. Uh, Buckingham Palace opened to the public for the first time. Really? Yeah, it was like a big thing then, tours and whatnot. Hmm. Uh, Monica Seles was stabbed during the tennis match in <gasps> Germany. I do remember yeah, that. That was just a bonkers, bonkers, bonkers. Yeah. Um, in Australia, the worst brush fires in history destroyed the world's second largest national park, which was very awful, awful, awful. Very traumatic. Is that still the most? I believe it is. The worst in history, even though like the ones that, that happened earlier this year? National park. Not, not oh, necessarily oh, oh. the most area. The second largest gotcha. national park. Yeah. Gotcha. Slovakia gains independence from Czechoslovakia, and they're split yep. from that. Um, police officers were convicted in the Rodney King case, the civil case. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. no, they weren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that was the whole thing. <laughs> right. They had violated yeah. Rodney King's civil rights was what it was yes, determined in that case. Um, the World Wide Web was born at CERN. Yes, it was. Big, big thing. It wasn't invented by, who was it that said he invented it? Al Gore. <laughs> He was instrumental in passing legislation for it to become available for commercial right. use, but yeah. it got twisted into saying yeah. he, him saying it's, he invented which is funny. the World Wide Web. Yeah. But yeah. In any case, that came about that year. The World Health Organization declared that 14 million people had AIDS worldwide, which was like a huge thing. Yeah. That was like, everybody was so freaked out about that back then. Yep. It was huge. Um, police started investigating Michael Jackson child abuse cases that year. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Man. Brutal. Um, what was going on at the movies, you say? Well, let me tell you. Okay. <laughs> Jurassic Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Fugitive, Schindler's List, The Firm, Ooh. Indecent Proposal, Sleepless in Seattle, Pelican Brief, Philadelphia, Cliffhanger, which I don't really know what Cliffhanger is, and then In the Line of Fire. Uh, it's a Sylvester Stallone movie. Oh, okay. I didn't see that one, but it seems like there was a lot of serious stuff that year, like between yeah. Schindler's List and The Firm and a lot of really like crazy serious stuff going on. Yeah. Um, as far as music was concerned, the top song of the year was Dream Lover by Mariah Carey. Oh, so right? good. Blast yes. from the past. Um, the top songs, oh, excuse me, in music, Janet Jackson, Snoop Doggy Dogg, UB40, Whitney Houston, Radiohead, Aerosmith, Phil Collins, oh. Garth Brooks, Rod Stewart, Mariah Carey, Madonna, Nirvana, R.E.M., Alice in Chains, all huge. Like You're just like speaking my language. Like this is what I currently listen to. Such the crazy <laughs> mix of different like genres, different people, different types of music. Like you've got country, you've got, you know, mellow, you've got like... The REM and Nirvana and grunge just crazy, crazy, up. crazy, huge, huge grunge time in history. So get this. Remember last time we talked, the Sony Walkman was 200 bucks? Yeah. The Sony Walkman now, it's the Sony Walkman, is now twenty nine ninety eight. Woo! <laughs> 1993. It's dropped. It's now yeah. so much cheaper. Um, the life expectancy for men was 72.2 years, and for women it was 78.8. Which, Do you know what it is currently? Uh, it's probably dropped significantly with COVID, don't you think? Well, I was gonna say like see. outside of COVID. What if like before COVID? What would I wonder Let's what the I'm gonna look life it up real quick. Was um, twenty twenty life expectancy tables. Worldwide life expectancy is seventy five years for women and seventy years for men. Uh, this I was looking at U.S. North America ranks first in terms of life expectancy with 77 years for men and 81 years for women. They've both gone up is what I meant to say. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the lowest life expectancy is in Africa. It's 62 years for men and 65 for women. Interesting. Yeah. Um, in any case, it was that's where it was for that year. Uh, Disney released the movie Aladdin, which was mm. huge. It just sold so many copies in the first week that they were just astounded by that. And that was when they knew they started needed to start releasing those Disney movies because they were big money makers. Mm -hmm. um, the truth is out there. The whole X-Files thing was like a big thing back then. Mm -hmm. And got, my sister loved that show. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Got milk was a big thing back oh then. Oh my gosh. Um, my <laughs> sister looked kind of like uh, what was the chick's name? Scully, Agent Scully. Oh really? Yeah. So everybody would always mention that to her. So my older <laughs> sister. Um, television going on in the nineties was nineteen ninety three was Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman, Star mm -hmm. Trek, Space Rangers, Getting By, Beavis and Butthead which I used to watch. Oh, I'm sorry. I used to watch it. I know it's ridiculous, <laughs> but I used to watch it. I wasn't allowed to watch it. Politically Incorrect, Saved by the Bell, the college years, which I watched. I'm ashamed oh my to gosh. say. I <laughs> consumed Saved by the Bell. Oh my God. It was, I was huge. I watched it every day. Um, Tribeca, the nana, the, excuse me, the nanny, which mm -hmm. I don't understand why that show was ever a thing. Um, Walker, Texas Ranger, Mm -hmm. uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers were big then. Mm -hmm. Dave Letterman, Two Stupid Dogs, Conan O'Brien, Jay Leno, NYPD Blue, X Files, Bill Nye the Science Guy, which I used to watch too. Yep. <laughs> Frasier, Martha yep. Stewart Living, which I was obsessed with. Those shows, I, I swear. Grace Under Fire and The John Stewart Show. I think it was really a big, huge time for like nighttime comedic talk shows. Yep. That was like the thing. Everybody had to watch yep. David Letterman. Like that was the hugest thing. See, I was always a Conan fan. Yeah. No, I didn't really. Still am. I wasn't really into watching TV at that hour of the night. I was always yeah. doing, reading a book or something. But so now onto the story. Let's set the stage a little bit. Michael Jordan is huge at that point um, for basketball. As we all know, mm -hmm. number twenty-three, he was the the goddess of the god of air, you know, and the pic, the mm -hmm. logo picture, the shoes. I had at least six pairs of his Jordan, Did the you? Jordans, yeah, and I had a paper out to work for him so that I could get what I wanted because my parents yeah. were like, "No way in hell are we spending one hundred and fifteen dollars on a pair of sneakers for you, buddy." And now that's like average, <laughs> right? So yeah. I literally had every color that was available, and I worked my paper out and saved up to buy them, and then I wow. actually just sold them a few years ago i still had them in the bo original wow. boxes and i sold them on ebay and they sold for i think like eight or nine hundred bucks a pair and they were worn and oh used gosh. and like beat up and everything it was crazy it was amazing i was so glad <laughs> i kept them although i want i i it makes me almost want to cry now i wish i would have kept them because they probably would have been worth even more money now but right like when you have yeah. them with the original boxes and all that kind of stuff yep. it really makes a difference but anyway Michael Jordan was huge at that point. He played for the Chicago Bulls. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew who he was. He was one of the most recognizable athletes. He was in the Olympics as well. Everybody knew the who Michael team. Jordan was, right? So his father, James Jordan Sr., was born in Wallace, North Carolina, August 1st, 1936. He went to Charity High School where he met Dolores Peoples, who is MJ's mom. Um, they dated through high school, and then James joined the Air Force in 1956 where he moved to Virginia and then finally married Dolores. So they were together off and on throughout that time. I think continuously, like not necessarily living in the same area, but they were continuously mm -hmm. together for that period of time. Um, the next year they had James Ronald, Ronnie Jr. James left the Air Force shortly after that and got a job at a textile mill in Wallace, North Carolina. So it seemed as though um, 
James Jordan Sr. was really trying to put things in place to provide for his family, to be a good dad, to like advance his career, to get the skills he needed to make sure that his family had a good life. So mm-hmm. it's not like he was just a, a, a good man, a good family man, cared about his kids, cared about his wife. I mean, the fact that he was with her for that long throughout high school and yeah. still married her and they were together speaks volumes of his um, ability to care for his family and his loyalty and, and so yeah. forth. So. And he moved back to the town where he grew up, yes. so maybe he wanted to be close to his parents. Yeah, or, so that the families like, maybe, could be Family involved. was important to him. And it was really important for them as well to have the sort of environment where their kids could grow up in kind of a wholesome kind of atmosphere as well. Mm-hmm. The Jordans then had a daughter, Dolores, and a son, Larry. This is one thing I have a little sidebar. I don't understand the concept of naming kids after yourself, both the, the women and the men. Like, My dad's a junior. Yeah, I... I, to me, it seems very narcissistic, but I mean, it is what it is. They named both the daughter yeah. after the mom and a son after the dad, yeah. which seems weird to me. But anyway, that don't write hate mail to me. <laughs> <laughs> In 1963, the Jordans left the kids with James's mom, and this was their paternal grandma, and they moved to Brooklyn so that James could get mechanic training under the GI Bill. So again, mm. he's mm-hmm. taking steps to ensure that he's building a career for himself where he can provide for his family and be a good dad. Mm-hmm. Um, he studied airplane mechanics, and his mom got a job at the bank, MJ's mom, that is. And this was about the time that they had Michael. And then, right about then, they decided that Brooklyn was starting to have higher crime rates and they moved back to North Carolina to give the kids a safer life. So Michael was born in New York. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then they moved back to kind of a more rural environment. Um, Rosalind was born the last daughter after they moved back. So at that time they're back in North Carolina. James Jordan is very passionate about basketball and baseball and he's encouraging his sons to play as much as possible because he wants to share that passion with them. And Michael really excelled, I think, more than any of the other children. I think they all kind of excelled at sports, but I think Michael really was the one that they could tell had a special gift. Right. And the family followed him first to UNC and then on to the Chicago Bulls, where he became the man that he was known for. Just this amazing Mm -hmm. force of basketball power. So James was also, as I mentioned earlier, a huge baseball fan, and that was more of his, he was better at that. He'd even played semi-pro at one point. Mm -hmm. So Michael Jordan's dad played semi-pro baseball and sort of instilled that in his son as well. And I do believe that at a later date, because he knew that his father had been so passionate about that, that's what inspired him to go try that career where he took that little temporary um, kind of break from basketball and played baseball for a while. You remember that? You know where he played baseball? No. Where? Birmingham. Oh, interesting. I saw him. Yeah, I saw him play at the Hoover Met when I was in fourth grade. Yeah, super, super interesting. Um, what was I going to say? So fast forward to 1993. That's kind of a side note, the stuff about Jordan himself, because, yeah. you know, it's the son and it's the father that we're talking about now. But fast forward to 1993. Jordan is in his heyday with Chicago Bulls. He won the first championship with them in 1991. And then 92 and 93 was the big three-peat. And that was mm-hmm. huge. But now it's July 23rd, 1993 in North Carolina. It's warm. It's the middle of the summer. James Jordan has, is going to a funeral. Um, and he is driving back from this funeral in his brand new red Lexus SC 400 that had been purchased for him by his son, Michael. And, and was this in like the Wallace, North Carolina area? Yes. So okay. 
he's driving back from this funeral and he gets tired and decides to pull over as I think many of us do. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really know why, I think because it was a shorter distance, he decided he was going to drive there, but there was still a little bit of a distance with the drive and he's on highway 74, us highway 74, just outside of Lumberton, North Carolina. Okay. Um, this town is into the state a little bit, but it's smack dab between Fayetteville, Myrtle Beach, Wilmington, kind of in the center of those. And it's 37 miles from Fayetteville. Yes. Okay. And Fayetteville is where Fort Bragg is located. It's a very big army base. Um, and it's maybe looks like it's like an hour or so uh, inland from Wilmington, which is on the coast. Yeah. So, so that's that's a pretty good hike from Wallace to Lumberton. So he's driving for a few hours maybe for the trip and, and gets a little tired. So he decides he's going to kind of pull off on the side of the road and, and just take a little nap. But when he did this, two men spanned, excuse me, two men spotted the fancy car and maybe stopping wasn't the best idea. Maybe the spot that he stopped wasn't necessarily all that safe, but that's when Daniel Green and Larry Demery come across him. They see the car, and I do not believe they knew who the driver was at that point Mm -hmm. um, or about any potential connections that he had with Michael Jordan, but they see that it's a fancy car, and they see dollar signs, and they Mm -hmm. approach the car, and they ended up shooting James Jordan. And they dumped his body in a swamp 40 miles away in McCall, South Carolina. The body of James Jordan was found August 3rd. Um, And seeing that this is several weeks later, it's summer in the South. The body had decomposed very quickly. And Mm -hmm. it took dental records to identify it on August 13th. Wow. So I believe that his family, when they did not hear back from him as they thought that they would, immediately reported him missing. And so they were kind of on the lookout for this anyway. So when a body mm-hmm. was found in this swamp, I think that they were very quickly located and informed that this might potentially be James mm-hmm. Jordan. Um, with a lack of storage space, the coroner cremated the body almost immediately because of the decomposition. But he kept the jaw in hands for later identification, which huh. seems really horrific to me. I, I, I don't know if that's standard practice or not, but that's what they had done. They were able to identify the body with the dental records because they had mm-hmm. saved the jaw. In the meanwhile, these two bozos, the guys that came upon James Jordan, start going through the car. And I think there's some speculation at that point, you know, how long was it before they discovered that this was Michael Jordan's dad? Did they really right. discover it? Were they aware of it? How much were they aware of? But they found two NBA championship rings. And then at that point, they presumably know that this person is connected to Michael Jordan. Yeah. Looking through papers in the car, registration, whatever. And in the meantime, they are, excuse me, in the meantime, they're making calls on James's cell phone, like a bunch of freaking idiots. Because it was 93, 94? Yeah, it's very, very... You could trace that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, car phones were, like, really fancy back then. So I'm sure that they see this car phone and they're like, wow, how cool is this? Let's check it out. And start making calls Let's call everybody we know. Yeah, and this allowed the police to track and immediately capture them, these two men. At at this point, Demery claims they planned to just kind of tie James up. And that and rob him basically, take his car, carjack him, and just tie him up and leave him there. But that's what they said after they got caught. Yeah, but he claims that Daniel Green pulled the trigger and killed Jordan for no reason. Okay, so So these two, it's basically one word, one guy's word against the other. They both turn on each other. They both are, are, you know, blaming the other guy for pulling the trigger for killing this man. The two men go to trial. 
Demery testifies that Green uh, killed Jordan, and Green refuses to testify. He pleads the fifth. Both men hmm. were found guilty, and because of other violent crimes in their past, they were sentenced to life imprisonment, but not without parole, which to me is perplexing. Like, they're yeah. accused and convicted of killing someone, of murdering this man in cold blood, but they still get the possibility of parole? Like, hmm. how is that even possible? I, I'm not sure. But um, James Jordan Sr.'s remains were buried in the Rockfish AME Cemetery um, in Antiche, North Carolina, August 15th, 1993. Which is just outside of Wallace. Yeah, yeah. So there was a huge scandal at this point because it was believed that the case was maybe part of a larger investigation in 2010 where North Carolina Bureau of Investigation found that lab techs had mishandled or omitted evidence in cases. So, like, it was, they were going through and reviewing a ton of cases at that time to try to determine if they were part of that lab mishandling. And they ultimately determined that this case was not one that you know had what been one mishandled. Was, though? What? The staircase. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. Yep. I can't believe that was part of the same thing. Yep. But in 2018, the executive director for the Center on Actual Innocence reached out with evidence claiming that Daniel Green was not involved in the murder, that he only helped Demery dispose of the body. The evidence was examined and the new request for a hearing was denied. So he still remains in prison. The update on this case is that August 2020, Demery was granted parole and he's scheduled for release August 6th, 2023. So this is not the one whose who's attorney said he wasn't involved. This is the one who testified against the other guy. Yes. So the one that's still in prison is the one that the actual Innocence Project got involved with to say that he wasn't involved. He's the one that's still in prison and that doesn't have parole. And I think part of the reason for his inability to gain parole is because he refuses to take responsibility for right. it. And oftentimes, in order to get parole, you have to acknowledge that you committed the crime and say, I'm really sorry, et cetera, right. et cetera. If you continue to deny the claims that you committed this crime, then you will probably not get parole. But, okay, so he, I'm kind of confused as to how they can make the claim that he was not involved in the murder when he was there when they took the car and than when they killed him, right? Or is his attorney saying that he wasn't there for that part, he was only there for the, to dump the yes, body? Yes, his attorney's saying that that. But the thing is, we haven't really seen the evidence or been able to examine it because I'm sure it's not something that's been released publicly yeah. because they want to hold that close to the vest so they can use it on their own case. Sure. But it wasn't strong enough to gain him another trial or for even to have them view the evidence and look at it again. So you know, it can't have been that convincing. Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing is, because you said that they robbed him in North Carolina and they dumped his body in South Carolina. Like 40 miles away. Now, I don't know but whether they- But they crossed state lines. Exactly. So I don't know whether they killed him immediately or whether they killed him at the swamp, whether they kept him hostage for a while. I think that much is unclear, and I do not think that these men are willing to necessarily tell the truth. And I think that they're both telling slightly different versions of the right. story where they're both pointing the finger at one another. But either way, there's a federal charge in there for- for something, either kidnapping across state lines or transporting a dead body across state lines. Right. There's something, you know, there's a right. federal charge in there. That's interesting that they haven't been hit with that. Yeah. It, it also, I think, was a very interesting uh, point in history and that this really deeply impacted Michael Jordan. And I think there were a yeah. lot of people that thought that this crushing grief of losing his father, he would never play again. So, 
it yeah. really brought a lot of this into this case into the headlines. And I don't think a lot of people were, knew and were aware that his father had been killed. And under the circumstances, the violent, awful circumstances that it happened under either. Do, do you know, did you happen to read about how he found out or the... I feel like I remember him either finding out that his father was killed just after he played a game, or maybe he found out that his father was missing just after he played a game. Did you happen to read about that I at all? didn't see that in okay. any of the articles that I read. Okay. I'm sure that they're out there. I mean, there are literally, like, hundreds of articles right. about this. I think just given the high, pub- high publicity of the victim right. and Michael Jordan himself, everybody and their grandpa wrote about this, which, right. again... Uh, it's one of the cases that stood out to me just because of how it impacted Michael Jordan and the rest of the family. And, and this was two kind of scruffy looking white guys that killed an affluent black man, which I thought was hmm. an interesting switch from what the media tends to dwell on now. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that that was possibly the reason that he wanted to play baseball. I didn't I didn't know that. It was a passion it, of his father's. Yeah. And I think his father wanted him to play professional baseball. And I think that um, he had a talent for it. Obviously, he had mm-hmm. some skills. Otherwise, he wouldn't have advanced to where he was. But I think he tended to have more skills in the basketball arena. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it definitely yeah. is interesting to see that influence in there and to know that his father played semi-professionally. So there yeah. was some skill with that in the family. And yeah. it's, a, it's a sad case. I mean, here's this this man who's kind of unsuspectingly taking a nap on the side of the road because he's tired in his, you know, in his car and, and gets ambushed and attacked by a couple of scruffy losers who kill him just because right. he's got a nice car. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, and it's interesting. So... You know, I said that he played baseball in Birmingham, and there's a couple interesting things about that because Birmingham is the Birmingham Barons um, is the team that is a it's a double A minor league baseball team, and they are a feeder for the Chicago White Sox. So there's that mm-hmm. connection because he came from Chicago to Birmingham. But yeah. there's also the historical component of the Birmingham Black Barons, um, which was the team in Birmingham before the color barrier was broken and major league baseball just recognized the Negro leagues as major league baseball as yeah. So, so that's interesting too. And I, you know, that's, that's just an interesting, there's a lot kind of, of interwoven connections yeah. in this case that I found particularly interesting. And when I looked, it's not like there's a Wikipedia page for this that kind of goes into great detail about the crime itself. Right. I think it, it the the way it kind of is played out and, and and is presented and demonstrated is they've kind of gotten away from the grimmer, more grisly specific aspects of this crime and focused on it just more of as a, as a general thing. Yeah. Um, and I wonder to myself when I investigated this and when I look at this, did he fight back? Was it a situation where they knocked on the window and he rolled it down, you know, groggy, half asleep, didn't see that they had a gun or whatever, and then they pulled the gun on him and shot him immediately? Or like how that played out? Did right. he fight for his life? Did he try to, you know, hey, take the car, I'm fine? Or did he say, no way are you getting this car, F you, and then they shot him? Like right. there, there's certain elements of it that I wonder how they played out in, in that sort of a way. But at the same time, it's just a very sad thing that somebody needlessly lost their life over a car. And due to the decomposition, there might not have been a way for the investigators to tell if he right. fought back. Yeah. Um, and the but, fact that they threw his body in a swamp is just yeah. appalling. Absolutely yeah. appalling that they treated this man with so, so little respect and they had so little respect for life and for somebody else that they would just kill him and dump his body in a swamp perhaps hoping that alligators or 
crocodiles or whatever would eat him and dis- dispose of the evidence. Yeah. It's, just, it's awful. But in any case, I think we'll go ahead and wrap this one up for the day um, since we've covered, I think, off on everything that we need to cover. Yeah. So again, I am making a deliberate effort to kind of go through and find more cases that don't get as much media coverage from people of color. Now, granted, this one doesn't necessarily qualify, I think, because of the fact that he was a celebrity's son, you know, professional, excuse me, he was a professional athlete's father. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the relative of somebody who obviously was very, very famous and still is. So it got a lot of media coverage. But had this been someone who did not have that connection, I feel like it would not have received anywhere near the media coverage that it had. Is that kind of what you were thinking as well? Yeah, probably. I mean, especially because of where it happened, too. So we're making it a goal, I think, in the upcoming year to find these these stories, these that are not getting the kind of media coverage that the blonde haired blue eyed missing girls are getting that are getting less attention because they are people of color. And I want to mm-hmm. cover these and I want to, you know, I know we did a little bit of that this last year with the cupcake McKinney case and some of the other things mm-hmm. where we talked about some of these young missing girls that just were not, uh, they weren't finding them. They were missing. They'd been kidnapped, taken, presumably murdered, and they just weren't getting the kind of media coverage that some of the other cases we're getting. So we're going to try yeah. to continue to do that in the upcoming year. Yeah. And, and our social media, um, you know, I do try and I, I, I'm kind of in charge of the Twitter account. And so I do try and retweet all of the Amber alerts and things like that. Um, so do keep an eye on for that as well. Cause that is very oftentimes um, what you would not consider the, the, the cases that gain a lot of attention. Yeah. So, and I think for me as well, I've always had this viewpoint about history and about learning about history and about learning about certain events that are happening in our country, that there is a certain specific group of people that control the narrative and they control the narrative to present what they want us to know about and to see. And I think as presenters ourselves and as podcast hosts, we have a responsibility to be as unbiased as possible and to help present some of this stuff to balance the news feed out and to present Mm -hmm. things that we feel are important because we know that when we feel they're important oftentimes other people like us feel that those things are important as well it's not just one guy in a news one white guy in a news office telling us what we need to present to the public that we have a responsibility as podcasters and providers of content to provide a balanced feed where we're talking about different things that may not get the kind of media coverage and light that they deserve because these are people too like sex workers, like young children of color, like normal people of color. They deserve just as much media time, coverage, and attention as white middle-class Americans. Mm -hmm. So we're doing our best to try to present a more balanced front. And are we doing a great job at it? Probably not. But we acknowledge that it's something that we need to work on and that we are continuing to try to improve upon in this upcoming year. Yes, absolutely. So in any case, we're going to wrap the podcast up for the day. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can shoot us an email. We're at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. We love getting emails from you guys. It allows us the opportunity to interact with you. And so many of our listeners have such cool suggestions. And mm-hmm. even if you have, you know, constructive criticism, we're happy to kind of address that as well. We know we're not perfect and there are definitely things we can improve on. And we like it when those are pointed out in a constructive way, right? Um, social media, Darcy. Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on Twitter and Instagram. 
And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.